Hello and welcome back to the AMPS podcast. My name's Owen Peters. And I'm Owen Shirley. And we'd love to pretend that we've walked up a steep mountain to record the intro to this podcast for you all. But in fact, what you're listening to is an excerpt from the soundtrack of the feature film Limbo. Yeah, Limbo is a recent theatrical release and it's a starkly funny and tragic film with sound design by Ben Beard. We were lucky enough to catch up to after seeing the film for ourselves and chat to him all about his process on the soundtrack. Yeah, it's a beautifully desolate film. It will make you laugh and cry. I recommend everyone go and see it. And Ben and his team have produced a wonderful soundtrack to complement the film. Yeah, Ben credits his main crew as, in his own words, Jamie McPhee, who really looked after the winds and the creeks, Alexei Mungersdorf, who did the dialogues, and Jack Wensley, who was his assistant and mix tech, as well as his emergency sound getter. Yeah, and a lot of sounds were got, as you will come to hear from Ben's explanation. But before we talked about the process of working on Limbo, we asked Ben to begin by telling us how he started his career in the industry. I guess the thing about it is um, mid-80s, um, interested in the rock and roll industry. I play the guitar like literally 4.7 other million people in this country and uh, <laughs> thought, you know, I want to get into the rock and roll industry. So I wrote off to every sound recording studio in London and one got back to me, which was a company called Sound Developments up in Camden Town, and they did dubbing and they did radio shows and they did these other elements of recording um, that I had absolutely never heard of before. Went there was the librarian and tea boy and thought, hold on a minute, this is actually more interesting. Then the recession, the first um, recession of the early 90s came along and all the main senior mixers left because they didn't want to put up with the pay cut that came with that. So I got into the studio um, and started doing lots of documentaries. So I got a lot of documentary experience. Uh, and then there was this fantastically entertaining series called Free For All that basically they finished editing on Monday and um, we'd have to conform all the sound and record all the voiceovers and mix. It's a half an hour show, and it was broadcast at, I think, 5.30 on a Tuesday. Wow. So it was less than 24 hours to get it. It was as topical as... And actually, I found this is, this is more exciting than anything, really. Okay, and yeah. you're sitting there, you know, I could sit there and suddenly put some expletives on, and that would have to... <laughs> that Channel 4 would have to broadcast it. There was no way there was time for, for them to, to check anything. Um, and so, yeah, quite a lot of documentary experience. Um, then a friend of mine who went to... St. Martin's, um, you know, Central St. Martin's doing the film course. He was doing a film and he wanted me, I'd done some of his short films, um, but then he came and he got a feature film and he wanted me to do it. But my boss said, hey, you know, you're, you're working eight, ten hours a day. Um, I mean, this, I've been there for now ten years or nine years. Um, anyway, my friend wanted me to do the film. My boss wouldn't let me do it, so I left to set up Aquarium Studios in order to do feature films okay. um, and to leave, not to leave the world of um, of documentary, not at all, but to to try and bring feature film and drama and you know, sort of TV shows and just expand what was going on. So three of us left, in fact, set up Aquarium Studios. Uh, we had a tiny little office in Wardour Mews um, for a little while. Um, where we we tried, oh yes, in the interim, of course, we'd got the, doing the sound on the FIFA football series. So that was a sort of support base for us to then go and look for more drama work. Um, and then I think so we broke into doing the this film for Channel 4 called Cinderella, which was shown in 1999 and it had lots of famous people in it. And mm. Mm. Um, it was absolutely brilliant, uh, you know, and B-Ban Kidron was the director. And so we think, all oh, right, now we've, we've managed to get into the, the drama stuff. 
But then it took quite a long time, really, to um, to sort of try and foster that. There was a big sort of Soho influence with a number of big sound houses, so it was very hard to sort of break into all the work that they were doing. But, you know, so if you, trying a few things out, we um, we did a, a few series. So the BBC did one on um, that's called The uh, the Genius of Mozart for the BBC Two. It won a sound BAFTA, so that helped. Oh, yeah, no, the year before we'd done the, the second last uh, Prime Suspect, which was a great experience. And, you know, working with Tom Hooper was, you know, tough. But actually I learned an awful lot about, you know, sort of sound treatment, um, silences... Um, and, you know, sort of attention to detail. And, you know, we had terrible, as it turned you know, we were still working on O2Rs and, um, you know, it's like really clunky old equipment. And we thought, well, and it got nominated for a BAFTA, and we thought, well, if we can get a BAFTA nomination with this crap old equipment, let's mm. buy some new equipment uh, and try to push things forward. So we, we started equipping ourselves. We got this building in Wardour Street with eight studios that we'd built over the years, um, we then went completely down the Avid, well, the Digidesign route, Pro Tools, getting you know, lots of plugins, lovely reverbs, you know, all, all the sort of stuff. The studios were small but nicely built. Um, then we expanded into the old Worldwide building, um, where, you know, so like with Richard King, um, and we got the Merlin TV series, and I think that was a sort of real game changer because suddenly sure. it's a series that's so big that was you know, sort of half the year was taken mm. care of in one series. And then, of course, um, there was the next... We got Yeah, we got our first big Universal film. Absolutely superb. Again, with B-Band Kidron. I think so she, I was doing a lot of stuff for her. I did this excellent TV series um, called Murder with Julie Waters, not playing a comedic, comedic part. It was absolutely superb bit of TV to work on. And then it went on, she did this uh, Hippie Hippie Shake, which is this film that never got released, tragically, because of all the legal entanglements. The end of it, it sounded and it sounded lovely. It sounded like a proper film. I thought, okay, this is fine. But then it never got released. And I think in this industry, you often, often you get your next job from your previous one, yeah. and it never got released. So that sort of that put a hold on things. But also the recession in two thousand and eight came along, um, and so we half closed down Aquarium Studios uh, after that. And even though Merlin was going on keeping us going, it was amazing how that credit crunch took out so much work. But you know. We, we we got ourselves through it, and um, and then we sort of just reformulated ourselves to sit there. Right, we're going to concentrate on doing films. We're going to concentrate on doing films that are artistic in nature. That um, there will be some flexibility on 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 budget because obviously now that we've shrunk down to being a smaller company, we can be competitive. But we don't want to do anything for free. But obviously to be completely value added and we've had a quite a tight team. And I think we're sort of placing ourselves in the sort of, you know, sort of aiming for something like Limbo. So that's the sort of film that we can really excel in because there's one or there's a small group of people making a film. It's not a massive, you know, sort mm. of room of, of executives. And mm. also it's so that the, the pressure is is more about how much creativity can you put into the film rather than we've got to perform to deliver this temp mix by this point and this temp mix by this point. And so we've enjoyed, not that I was you know, scared of that or anything, it's just that that seemed to be where our strengths were. And then there was the BFI thing that they did a few years ago, the eye features. And again, there was another fellow that we'd employed, Daniel. We went through a phase of saying, well, maybe the thing to do is rather employ people who are in the film industry is to employ people who are film enthusiasts. 
and say, you know, like, here's some pub money and a salary, obviously. Um, let's see whether we can hustle up some business because you're enthusiastic about film. And actually, this fellow, Daniel, who knew everything about every film that ever been um, made, uh, he was from Chile as well. And um, he actually, you know, sort of, yes, that's what he did. He did. He was a, I think he worked in the telecommunications industry in sort of some kind of marketing bit. So he had some knowledge, but no knowledge of actually how the film people operate and um, hustled up the, these eye features films, of which one was Lady Macbeth. And um, when we did that, that sort of changed things quite significantly. You know, it's like, um, obviously, Mark Commode mentioned it on his radio show a couple of times, and a number of people, um, you know, it's like even people from America that I'd never heard of actually sort of would send uh, an email or a Facebook thing commenting on the sound. Mm. So that's... Um, and then, yeah, Limbo was... Um, that's two years ago now, um, that, that, that cropped up out on that train. So probably there's a load of other things that I could have mentioned on the way, but those are the ones, the highlights, that have come after a weekend of being at a festival. <laughs> well, funny you mentioned a festival. I was at a festival over the weekend myself. Ah. It was a music festival, but they had a cinema tent. Well, I just thought you'd like to know that I went to some screenings of some short films, and one of the directors who... Um, I wrote his name down because it's quite hard to pronounce, but John Ogunmuyima, oh, yeah. if I get that right. But he's directed three brilliant short films, but he mentioned Limbo. He was talk- they were being in- he had a Q&A after, and right. they were talking about the industry, and he, w- he gave a couple of examples of films which he was sort of saying, you know, people need to go and watch this stuff. You know, it's kind of not, not massively budgeted, no. but really creative and really powerful stuff, and yeah, it really is. It is no. I mean, I mean, I remember when I when I first read the script and um, I was trying to bid for it. I read it and you know, sort of in this, you know, obviously, my wife has gone and worked in refugee camps, and you know, like my brother-in-law is, you know, sort of was helping um, choose love for quite a long time, and um, and has been operating um, managing refugee camps, and so that the the other side of limbo. The where mm. they've escaped from is actually res- relatively strong in my life. I mean, not you know, I keep thinking that you know, one one year I'm going to go and spend my two weeks in a Greek refugee camp, mm. and and I actually you know, my wife thinks it's something that everyone should do for two weeks when they've just left school and mm. realise that actually you know we've got a good here in many ways. Is that that and working in a shop? You know, when you mm. realise how rude com- customers can be in a shop, you wouldn't be rude in a shop and to work <laughs> in a refugee camp. Kind of a national service. But it yeah, was very yeah. interesting to read this story that was kind of the the other side and yet managed to, you know, managed to get the... Um, um, the desperation, desperateness of what was going on in, unseen in the film with mm. actually this lightness of touch mm. that made it entertaining with these characters. And also, I mean, to be totally fair, the performances... Mm. are superb they've really you know so come but then when you meet ben it's like uh ben shark the director he's sensitive to that light touch you know and work you know so he worked me sensitively i could feel that you know i mean it's interesting with the sound and limbo we took the idea i came with the idea that i looked at i i go to scotland a lot i know that i don't know that island but i know the northwest coast really well i mean i've i go every year to go and climb mountains up there and right. it's brutality and um, but also in amongst the brutalities, it's intense quietness. So mm. that I came with the the idea to the film that it would be a good idea to to let's try it, being sort of counter what you see. You know, you have these scenes with waves and the wind everywhere, um, and and just just you know, like it looks like chaos, and see what happens if you bring it so that you what you hear is the opposite. And Ben mm. was happy to go along with this idea. 
and then um, it became quite clear after I'd done it that was a rubbish idea. Um, <laughs> it really just didn't it didn't sit with the film at all. But it sat with about six scenes. I don't like to trial and error things. I like to have a plan and do it and find out that it's the wrong plan and then do another plan and I'll see what I can take from that previous plan. I think it's how I've gone, you know, it's what I learned by watching Merlin that episode. It's what I learned by, you know, so you've got to try something, but you've got to try something that has not, it has to be constructed from the beginning to end. And I think it was quite interesting that the direction, you could feel as you were doing it that actually it was the wrong, it was the wrong way in many, many ways. And, um, but... It really unlocked. There's about six scenes that are really unlocked, and you thought, right, they, you know, so that's what we're going to go. Those six scenes, we've sorted those six scenes. They are done already, and this was well early in the in the process, really. And then it was about making the island actually a character. And I think it was the thing. It was the the big question was, is the island one of the characters of this film, or is it just a backdrop? And and I think that it became quite clear. I mean, I think to be fair to Ben, he knew what what he wanted. He was happy to let me do find my own journey there. That's why he directly he guided me into into doing the soundtrack that's there. Um, but he was able to sort of sample a lot, you know, a lot of the things because I think around the oud playing, you know, we had an oud and we, we recreated a lot of the sort of just the nat noises and and created the character out of this. And the original idea was the, of the silence was that wherever the oud was in his case, it was making a little tiny noise. So it was sort of like trying to get out, but he wasn't letting it out. It was a prisoner inside this box. But on the other hand, you know, it's like, again, one of the discussions was, is it a prisoner inside the box or is it a dead body in a coffin? So again, you know, like it was finding that balance and every now and again it would make a noise, but it'd be quite subtle. But that when, And then once we put in... And I think there's, like, there's a shot, for example, when um, you know, he's sitting on, on, the, on the top of a grassy field and the wind is blowing and, and you know, like... Ben had wanted to try and actually get the whole thing of that three-dimensional grass. So you can hear the grass here, you could hear the grass in the middle, and you could hear the grass right in the distance. And they have those definite, you know, sort of sense of that three-dimensionality. That if obviously they built cinemas with loudspeakers down long hot tunnels, it would be a lot easier to do. Yeah. And um, <laughs> but actually, you know, so then you realise that the original plan of being quiet was not going to work with that. And then once we got this grass. Right, which obviously involved a lot of recording, you know, sort of going out and recording windy places. I mean, when we record, when we do films, we do try and re-record everything as much as we can, original to the film. And I go out and about, you know, it's like the foley is often split between what we have to do in the studio, like probably clothes stuff, but footsteps and, um, you know, like the oud and all the rest, of it, they're all recorded in various different locations depending on what, what the, the image is doing. I find that, you know, just like in the same way as you have an actor, that they're best before, they're, they do their best performance when they've been rehearsed and they're in the right environment. The same goes for, for, the, for the sound, you know, it's like, like, like the oud, me going into the common out there on a stormy night with the oud and my son holding a microphone to try some things out. It is quite interesting what you then find out what can be heard from a thing inside a box um, from, you know, it's like 30 feet away and, and stuff like that. No, you know, it's like obviously being realistic, these films don't have high budgets, so we can't go and buy a BMW and smash it up to make all the sound <laughs> effects. Yeah. But um, but we try our best, you know, sort of to get some bits. And I often find that, you know, like I go to Scotland once or twice a year, I take my recorder. And I think that's, again, with a lot of these things, is you, if you can near the, hear the sound in your head, which I think I'm beginning to now get to that point, 
um, then I can, rather than try and emulate it with plugins and all the rest of it, I go to the place that I've heard that sound and record it there. My dad used to, was a composer, and um, and he would always sit there and say, you know, I'd say, do you sit at the piano and and work things out? And he says, no, I've got I've got the thing in my head. I just it comes out of my head and I play it. Sometimes I'm frustrated because my hands won't play it. Mm, um, yeah. But it's not because I'm trying to fiddle. Da, 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 da. It's because I I know what I want to be. And I thought that's an interesting way around to look at it. So as to try and hence going back to. The, the, the bit when Ben was, you know, I was talking to Ben about the plan is to have a plan and make it sound like you want it to be. And then it doesn't work. So you then make plan B. It's a real sort of step by step journey that you can really, from watching Limbo, really feel all those elements in play. Mm. Um, having that confidence to just be silent and work with silence or I think the that I think perception it's a, of silence. It is. It's a, it's a, it's a fantastic. Um, yeah, yeah, silence is a fantastic tool. And, um, and I, I've seen the effect in many times now that, I mean, I know that um, I, I was one, of, one of the things I was slightly frustrated with uh, A Quiet Place is that they could have done more of it. You know, like mm. enjoyed that thing. Because there's a couple of moments where they do the silence with the um, deaf girl. And you think, yeah, that is, that is bloody powerful. You think that this is like 2001 did it. When you go into space and it's absolutely silent, it's like mm. you're, you suddenly your blood is screaming in your ears. Mm. And, uh, mm. yeah, and I think that that, that is, um, yeah, yeah so an underused. I mean, I think if it becomes overused, then maybe. That, but I think so you sit in the cinema and actually people shut up. You know, I remember with Lady Macbeth and also worked on this film Summerland, which it may not strike as being a logical thing to have silences in, but there's a lot of magicalness in the, uh, in, in the film. And actually you can sit in there in the, cin- in the cinema watching and these magical moments would happen and actually silence would be around them. And you can feel the audience is, I've got, no, I've got nowhere to escape. I'm, I, must be, I must go into the, into the film. And they mm. stop crunching on their popcorn and they stop drinking their drink. And I think it's, obviously, it's a very powerful tool. I mean, obviously, you know, it doesn't work for everything. But I always think about it. Um, I mean, I remember a long, long time ago, I did this documentary on the uh, the telephone calls from the 9-11 towers. And there's this moment where there's this bloke who's calling the, ambu- uh, calling the fire service um, at the moment the tower collapses. And there was all these discussions, all these exits and stuff about how we do the thing collapsing and the explosion and all the rest of it. And... Um, by the time I got there, the, 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 all the temp tracks and the music are built up to this massive noise. And I just simply suggested, if you just thought about when the line cuts dead, we just go to silence. And, and of course, you watch that and everyone says, oh, yeah, that's clearly the logical thing. But then when we went to the BAFTAs, it was got nominated for a BAFTA, it was great. But when we went to the BAFTAs and they played all the bits, uh, you know, they played the whole little section, which is about two minutes of this phone call. And then it went to silence. And at that moment, everyone's night had been ruined. It was absolutely too horrific. And you realise that sometimes these things can go too far. And you realise the humanising elements that music can play. It's actually sometimes, I remember sort of having many arguments to say, you know, that music is making it obvious, it's getting the violins out. Do we really want to do that? But you realise that without it, it's too brutal. It's too horrible. And I think sort of that was a big, big lesson that, you know, and I think that's what comes out of Lady Macbeth. Lady Macbeth plays that brutality with not having the music. And it was mm. very interesting that when it came to Limbo, that um, 
by this particular point, right, you know, so like I was looking forward to working, especially with Hutch, who I'd worked with before on um, the levelling and has a sort of like very sort of... Um, um, her music very much can eke in and out of sound anyway. She's very sort of textural. You know, not necessarily big tunes. There's some, some nice, you know, pleasant tunes that, that drift in and out, but they can, they can be moulded into the soundscape beautifully. So actually I think, mm. oh, no, this is, we, we don't want to go for the full silence tune. It's about, about that, that, that balance, that humanising element. And, of course, Limbo is an incredibly human story. And I think sort mm. of mm. if you sat there and made it brutal in every way, suddenly you would lose that delicate light touch. And I think that's what Ben was going. It's, it's actually the, the island is not only that there's the wind there, though if you hear his stories about the shoot, I mean, the wind is incredible. The wind and birds. <laughs> We'd agreed that we weren't really going to have birds, apart from there's one bird call as the geese fly away and there's one bird call right at the end when he's walking away. There's an oyster catcher that comes in and does a little tweeb. Um, but up until uh, then, there's no other birds because I think they always have that thing of making things sweet. And, yeah, and they don't yeah. really, you know, sort of... I think the idea was to be elemental rather than animal, you know, sort of, you know, water, fire. You know, they're, 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 when he meets his brother, that's the fire. Um, mm. You know, like the, the island is the, is the water and, the, and you know, like the, the peop- they are in the wind. And there's sort of that just to try and have a, a sort of methodical, elemental, um, you know, it's not too McCall like, you know, pedantic. And no, it's just no. to have a sort of sense of this this elemental um place. And of course, I think then to make it a bit lighter is that it was a bit crumbly. So we we filled it with these little creeks and everywhere there's something that's a little bit rusty over there. And it's been, you know, it's got the old telephone box that obviously most people in the UK would barely recognise as a functioning telephone thing as being mm. a very focal point. Um but it was a kind of a wind tunnel. Um, again, you know, sort of being elemental as he's having this conversation with his, his mother and back in Syria. That was one of the things that really stuck out to me from a sound perspective was how these conversations that you have where, you know, you're clearly hearing someone who is, you know, he is remote. This yeah. is a remote conversation. Yeah. But you're also really close because it's really touching and important conversation emotional conversation so i'd love you to kind of talk about your process of how you got the sound of the mother's voice to to feel remote but also close if that makes sense. yeah no no we 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 actually had quite a few sort of um what's the word not attempts because actually all of them were but you know sort of to, to see which was best i think you know at the start it's it's light and you know with the telephone ring right at the beginning that then just like um it gets answered but it rings for you know, mm. ages, and then the limbo thing comes up. The, you know, when we start, it, it, the, the sound is more realistic and functional. When I say realistic, more realistic as we experience it in the in the TV land or film land. Yeah. Yeah. Because obviously, if you're making the phone call, the person in your ear sounds perfectly clear. And so this, in the film world, we have this thing where we put it as if you're probably standing about a, six inches away from the phone listening off the back of the person's shoulder. Yeah, and I think the thing about it is that that's where we started, but then would gradually move in so that we're really just in his ear. So mm. the conversation is just him and his mum and the, and the wind um, and elements around, especially in the, by the second conversation, they've sort of gone away. And there were moments, in fact, there's a few moments where we just the sound has no telephone effect on it at all and they're genuinely talking to each other. And then I think mm. the father breaks the spell and it goes back to a little bit telephone. But okay. again, so it's very subtle, subtle moves because again, yeah. 
you know, and actually we've been the telephone conversations were possibly the hardest to do technically because um, the um, there were some there were bits of Arabic that um, you know Ben wanted to change and you know sort of and also that the mother and father were originally he was originally recorded to some kind of live track and then we were replacing that and what they were saying was slightly changed so it was quite a lot of technical work around those calls right. but I think the, the the main thing was that at certain key moments you wouldn't really be aware of it but actually it's just she's sounding like she's in the room with you yeah, and yeah. and then of course that's that's what you get you know you're sitting there talking to you know i remember when i used to go to ireland and phone up my mum or my wife and if I, if I, you know so if i'm working there for 6 weeks by by the 5th week i'm actually totally bloody homesick and you sort of hanging on to the the voice at the end of the phone and you become you know, you're with them. The rest of the world has gone away. The fact that there's a noisy pub outside and there's cars going, that's all gone away. And I'm just with them and it's right in their ears. I think it was about get, getting that sense across. I mean, a lot of sound, I think, I've, I, I, another thing I was always thinking is, 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 you know, if you think about memory, um, that helps in the sound. And so when you sit there and say, what do you remember about some period in your life? You don't remember the Tweety Birds or the bee or the rustling leaves that we sound people put in all the time. You remember the emotion of the person who was speaking to you, you know, be it your mum, dad or brother or first girlfriend or boyfriend or enemy or whatever it is. The emotion around that and you, and you realise that actually so much of our, you know, our work is to make sure that that is exposed in the correct way. Because Limbo, uh, you know, I, I don't know how he's done it really. The pace of Limbo is be beautiful. It's one of the most beautifully paced films. It's, it's not too slow, it's not too fast, but it's, it's time for everything. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you've got time for, um, you know, like the idea of a delicate over two minutes, very, very gradually turning a telephone effect off in this conversation. And so it's almost imperceptible. But, you know, so you think, how often do you get that, a time, two minutes in a film, to, for anything to unfold? It's very rare. I'm not saying that's a, that's, a, that's a fault. I think it's just this is what one of the beautiful things about Limbo. And you have these scenes where actually, you know, two men, it's like when the two men are sitting um, at the playground talking about the oud and talking about the, um, the leathery um, orange thing that he would eat was it the um, apricot thing and you have the the opportunity for 30 seconds for to unfold a little bit of the background squeaking and the the fact that the oud is making a little bit of noise and you had this time but it didn't feel that it was slow it's i don't know how he managed that mm -hmm. I, I, you know the performances really help at no point do i feel that the sound is used to patch up something that's missing and i think that's a big big thing sometimes because of the budget, you're helping something that they couldn't afford to shoot, mm. or yeah. that's you know there's there's a missing crowd around that corner, or and I think once your sound designer is having a technical function to do, it's then very hard for it to also have a creative function. And whereas Limbo, it didn't there didn't feel there was nothing missing. I mean, I'm, it sounds like I'm criticising a lot of films suddenly because I'm not really. I know it's really difficult. That's why we love working at the at the sort of the artistic budget level, yeah, should we say? Yeah, that's because the reality just, of it, though, isn't it? The it is the reality of it. Budget and time. So, how long how long did you have on this film? Oh, an unbelievable long time. We spent probably a year on it, but it was right. but it was a very very spread out and mm. and it was the most beautiful way where the I met Ben. Um, yeah, it must have been about a year before, and obviously there was about two or three people who were going for the uh, for the for the job, and it seemed to me that apparently the winning phrase was, "But I'll do what you're told because it's your film." 
you know, and I think he liked the fact that, you know, he felt that he could hear my ideas, but at the end of it, end of the day, I can throw my own ideas away and do his ideas. And I think that's yeah. always an important part of things. So then he wanted to try about, um, there was this scene of the Oud playing at the end where there's famous Oud player from, um, I mean, he's obviously in Beirut quite a lot, but I think he might have been Syrian. Anyway, famous Oud player and played this amazing piece. And um, Omar, the actor, he, he, he had learnt it as best he could. And actually, I think you've done really not a bad job of it. You know, so sort of, I think, and obviously this, his hand, close-up hands is the, um, is, a, is a proper oud player. But I think that the actor done a good job. And we wanted to get the sense of how that end performance was going to play out and whether it should be the whole piece or whether it should break off halfway through. I mean, this we had lots of arguments. I loved the whole piece of music. I was a big, you know, saying, you should have the whole piece of music. And Ben wanted to break it up and go into Omar's world with the score. And when I look at it now, I think, you know, he was so right. Um, but, you know, and actually, we, but, but we were able to re-edit it to get the two great bits of the music in. So everyone's happy with the, with the way it worked out. But we worked on that very first. And I think once he'd got the sense that, I, you know, how to make it dramatic, I said, well, your camera's moving dramatically. I think if the sound just follows the camera, mm. it's, going to, it's going to help tell the story. And when we're close with, uh, with Omar... We also want to hear his breathing and, and the, the bodily function, not, not overbearing on the music that he's playing, but aware that he's a human. It's not just a perfectly lovely, nice Abbey Road um, recording of the Oud, but it's him physically playing it. And it's the first time he's played in, you know, in 18 months or whatever it is. So we, as the camera moved in, we moved in the perspective... And as we got, you know, when we cut close to him, you could feel the sweat coming off him and the breathing and, uh, you know, panting and the uh, and actually the, his arm against the side of the oud. Every little detail like that is there. So you sort of feel the presence of everything he's doing. And then it would go back again and you go into the audience. And once they are able to demonstrate that, that pers- all those perspective moves and the effect they would have, then, you know, Ben was happy with that scene. And that scene then very hardly changed in the mix um, until the end, and even the, no, I mean, even at the end, it's pretty much the first mix I did of that scene. In amongst of all of this was the the conversation about it, me making it quiet. But I would do these scenes in the interim. So the location sound recorder is Phil Kroll, uh, who can't have known which way was up and down with the weather being so bad sometimes. Um, and working with Alexi Mungersdorf and Jamie McPhee, uh, who are the sound editors, and uh, managed to rescue. All by one scene, as far as I remember, of um, of uh, the whole film. Um, so with very little ADR. Hearing the stories that Ben um, had about the weather and the noise and, um, you know, that the weather would... I mean, I've been up there. I know how the weather can turn. And it goes from being lovely and calm to life-threatening. Um, and so many scenes, um, you know, well, nearly all of them bar two, we didn't really need to do any ADR other than a few little bits and pieces that Ben wanted to add in. Mm. Um, incredible. Uh, we, we did a load of breathing. So all of Omar's breathing we recorded afterwards, but very little of the dialogue. It was absolutely fantastic to work with, with stuff that actually we could bring to silence. But, the, but there was this one scene where it's actually by the sea, and you can barely hear anything other than this roaring sea because it's really going for it. So we again, we wanted to try that. You know, we wanted to see how the ADR would be would be on that. Um, so I, I was working on a film um, 
probably yeah, the year before Disobedience, um, which um, you know, great film to work on. And um, Sebastian Lelio is, um, yeah, he doesn't speak um, English brilliantly. And he would be listening to the emotional tone of what people were saying. So we were doing ADR and doing all the dialogue edit that actually he was more in tune with the performances that were going on than if you knew the words. And, uh, and, and once I'd understood and tried and practised and finally could actually listen and hear what he was hearing... It was an absolute eye-opener that, my goodness, you know, we've sat there and, you know, you, we worry about the lip-sync on doing ADR and the lip-sync being the most important thing. And you realise it's, it's, it's nothing compared to, you know, like the emotional tone, um, the rhythm um, and the, the, the feeling that the, the performance has. You know, that, and, I mean, obviously people have said this. It's not, I'm not coming up with a revelation of, of brand new, but it was a revelation when I finally realised what the, all those people were talking about. And that to, to, you know, to get this scene to sound like exactly like it was real, you realise that I'm, all that practice I've had with disobedience, I'm now going to try and apply that here. And to show that Ben, he doesn't need to worry, we can do ADR that won't affect the emotional content of his film. And we, I mean, we spent a long time. It took a long time. It was, one, it was not a very long scene, but it was, it was probably about a minute and a half. Um, and it took a long time to get it. But I would think that no one knows that it's ADR. No, um, no. because it's actually the emotional content is exact to the performance that they had out there. Anyway, so there was those two scenes that we did in Limbo um, very early on, and then there were bits and pieces that were trying out, and and then the sort of the idea of the film came about with its, its very quiet background. Um, then, the, then he went off and got married, so we had a four-month hiatus while that happened. That's why it took a year. I knew it was a good reason. Um, and then we came back. But in that four-month period, we tinkered. And um, so by the time then he came back in and we started working on it, so much of it was done in a sort of effortless and painless way. Apart from the fact that then he said, no, he doesn't like the silent thing. That's not really working. Let's get cracking. But we were sort of prepared for it, to be totally honest. It was just a matter of opening up faders and making the, 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 the wind and the elements um, a little bit lo longer. So that, that's, that's, that's how long it took. Um, but also it allowed me to go and record, I mean, it's the Foley and stuff, some of it, not all of it, some of it was recorded by, by me going to various places to record certain things and picking up, you know, the, the, the grass thing. That is grass recorded in a variety of places, including a bit in Wandsworth Common, um, you know, sort of on a windy day and, uh, you know, sort of a bit up in Scotland. So it did allow, for, a year allows for all those things to happen without it being a pressure. It's just I was there, oh, I'll record that and I'll put it in my limbo um, bucket. Great. I, talking about tinkering kind of brings me on to another thought, which is that the film masters perfectly that balance between tragedy and comedy. Yeah. And sort of shifts so effortlessly between those tones and sometimes it's kind of happening at the same time. So was that like an evolutionary process for you with the sound as well? Just trying to find what worked best, when to be uh, more active or less active with the sound? Well, yeah, I think, I mean, it's a good kind of advantage to, you know, when you read the script, it's so be it's beautifully written. And, uh, and actually the film sort of plays out very, in my mind, plays out very sort of um, from, from that script. Um, and, and I think it's, again, you know, like the, the performances are where that magic is so happening. And I think it's very, very tempting to um, think, well, I'm a sound 
designer, I've got to design some sound. And sometimes, you know, a lot of these things is, is pulling it, putting it back to allow performances to have their moments. I mean, I think there's sort of like, there is, you know, sort of the, the amusing bit where someone's coming back to the house after the two boys have been arrested. And then we go to the, the shot of the chicken in the hall on its own. And then it makes a <laughs> tiny little noise. Yeah. And, um, yeah, we spent quite a while working out whether it should be not making any noise or a tiny little noise, and it's mainly its footstep and it's pecking a carpet. We thought, it's just a simple pecking of a carpet is funny, but also it shows yeah. that house which had life in it at the beginning of the film is now that life has gone. So, again, that's, mm. that is the, the, that level of the bittersweetness that the whole film is doing all the time, yeah. and most of the time it's been done by the actors, but, yes, that, that chicken moment, I suppose, is a, is a point uh, where the sound is doing it. I think a lot of it is about setting up maybe some things like with the snow and the building into the storm, so when the snow, the, the building to that storm, and I suppose in a way that the storm is the biggest sound challenge now that I've remembered um, just now that that journey so like so the sense that something went from this gentle snowing that they're looking out the window going wow that's the first mm. time I've ever seen snow so that was quite an interesting journey to build up that um, that, that threat to, to place the, the, the wow of the, the snow for them to go you know yeah, it's, isn't this amusing to um, it's so terrible this storm and Omar is genuinely afraid and of course that's the one point the storm where because of the nature of the shoot and the budget, they didn't have much budget to make the storm. You know, like it's, uh, you know, so there's a lot of very close shots. But, and I think that's probably where we did step in to fill in the blanks. And I think we, we had this whole thing where wherever Omar was, the storm was its fiercest. So the storm could swell and then it could die away as he walked away. And you could hear some dogs and some other people walking around. Then we'd get close to Omar and it would just become bitter with the snow actually into the face of the camera. And you could feel the, all those little bits of you know, that get thrown up and blown against you. And then, again, he would walk to the side and the storm would walk away. And that dynamic, I think, you know, we took a few, few, few sort of paths with, with that. But I think that dynamic really worked in filling in all the gaps in, in the, for photographically in that. That, that was an interesting journey. I think a lot, a bit, a lot of the times it's a setup when you have the long, the, the speech in the bus shelter where um, Abed is, is saying that he's, you know, that it, it, they're not really brothers and it was all a pretense to be able to smuggle themselves across and that, um, but they've obviously grown to have a, some kind of relationship with each other, even though they met as refugees. Um, you know, and again, you know, like you had the rain. And again, that helps set up that sort of that feeling. I mean, we were looking at having sort of a background feeling of the, you know, sort of what it's like to be on a refugee boat, sort of drifting sort of ex expressionistically in the background. We tried this sort of sound of what it's like in the middle of him, that story. In fact, it's a recording we tried, I think it was, that my brother-in-law had when he was on a boat rescuing people. And... Um, from the sea, from a dinghy, you know, the sort of thing that he might have been in. So it's quite interesting, mm. but actually it didn't work. You know, it was far too expressionistic um, over right. this, you know, gentle um, you know, bus shell thing. But, yeah, I think that's, you know, that, that it, is, it is interesting, but the actors are so, you know, it was so much of these things about exposing their performance, making the most of their performance, making the details. So it's the Foley work, really, sort of, that is a lot of the thing, is to draw your eye to where Omar is or Fahad is, um, or what their focus is on, you know. I think you know. So there, there, there are a few things that 
we tried like the fridge in the um, when they're sort of sitting there eating the egg at the beginning and they're having the argument about friends and there's a sort of fridge perspective going on. But I think in retrospect, that's probably not really helping the fact that it's quite amusing that these people are arguing about friends. I mean, the sort of thing that we had that argument about friends 25 years ago and they're now arguing about the same stuff from friends and that's the only thing that they've got there. And it was amazing that considering they were allowed to use 30 seconds of friends and that's it, how it's managed to be spread out so efficiently. You'd think that friends was a big feature in the film, but... There's yeah. only 30 seconds of it, and yeah. and yet, you know, so yeah, because we, you know, we have these little gentle laughs that we around the house that they're always listening to friends. So yeah, it's quite yeah, it is, it is interesting, but it is the sound is only there really to expose and to accompany their performances, and and really, and I think that was where the original concept of my first reaction being to pull it all back was: don't let's put something in there that's going to fight these performances. It's very easy to do that. I mean, you know, when you're when you're in an action film, you've got to do that as part of the the thing. But I think when you're, you know, as you as you know, you're finding bits about little little onion skins are coming off these people as the time goes by, and they come off very quietly, and um, and you can't really blast blast it with anything. There was one point in the film I remember which did feel. It was a, it was a kind of gift to sound design in a way, and an opportunity to be more abstract and extreme, which is when Omar is tightening the strings on the oud. Oh yes, uh, from memory, it's kind of quite an abstract sequence, like a dream sequence, and it, and it's shot in a sort of way that that maybe cries out for something more forward in the soundtrack. And and yeah. so I was just wondering what went into that, whether there there is a lot of abstract sound design, or are we just hearing? very close-up elements of that Well, instrument. yeah, no, it, uh, we, we did it because the, those developments of those those bits was, um, qu- there's quite a lot of changes that went on with that, the, the, the idea, the build-up of that. But actually, um, a lot of it is close-up sounds of the real thing following the picture. I mean, I've recorded, I re-record, my, I've got this, uh, it's, not, it's not brilliant, but I've got this really old cello, so every time you touch it, it creaks. And the tuning on it, um, is really violent. So the, the oud has this nice metal um, machined um, sort of cog on it, in fact, that's behind it that allows the, the tuning to be a bit smoother than it is, but it's sort of embedded in it. So actually, you know, so it would just move a bit smoothly. Actually, that's rubbish. Forget that. It's not machined, but it's just much smoother. The way it fixed yeah. it was much smoother. Whereas my cello had this... It would, it would not move, and you'd force it, and eventually just click... And um, and so I, and I knew it did that. So I recorded loads of those. And I felt that was it. And also at the same time, plucking. Um, and I, I mean, obviously, Ben's when he gets his oud back, because obviously I, I still have his oud because right. we had lockdown. Um, he's going to discover that I've broken one of the strings. Um, well, two of them actually. <laughs> um, but actually, you know, so that the, you know, that clack that happened, and I think that had the force. So it is it is a it is an authentic sound, but it's not exactly the same sound. Um, I knew that I had this, this, you know, it's like every time I used to tune it, that's, you know, even back at school orchestra days, you know, people would hear this unbelievable loud noise and they think that the thing's broken, but it isn't, it's just because it's so old and it's not quite machine correct. It's not quite, well, it's not, it was, I mean, it's literally 200 years old. So it was, mm. it's all hand carved stuff and, um, but it's slightly falling apart. So it, it made those sounds. And I think it's also, again, from playing the cello and it's, it's the, the notes being detuned. So the whole thing is that from when the oud first, you hear it in the box, it's really subtle. You were, I mean, uh, even an A-level student studying this film as his you know, PhD or whatever 
won't actually get it. But the beginning, the the the, the strings are completely out of tune and as we get closer they become more in tune but as consequently because they're becoming closer they're becoming more dissonant so there is this slight sense of we're going in one direction which is positive but in that going that direction we're creating a more dissonant sound now these are very subtle these are little bumps and stuff as we're going along and then the first time we have the tuning the notes get to being you know like a, a, a semitone out with each other and so it's quite discordant. But on the last time, they don't fully meet because they fully meet when he plays. But mm. they've, So they've got to this place of being actually almost the same note. So it's almost maximum dissonance, but they're almost totally together. It's, again, you know, like a little bit of the sound saying, will he, won't he, um, is the kind Absolutely. of feeling of that. So I think that that's... But again, it's, it's all in the very natural thing. So there's no synthesising or anything else. This is me, my cello and the oud together being out of tune and in tune. Um, and the you know the various resonances. So you know playing the oud against my cello. In fact, you know like so that you it vibrated through my cello sound box was quite nice. Right. It made it resonate a little bit more. And actually the the sounds of it in the box. It's really subtle. And I think it was always yeah. intended to be really subtle. Um, mm. And I probably could have done it a lot simpler. But actually, I, I enjoy the story and the journey of things like that to sit there and say. You know, I think Ben enjoyed the story of the you know mm. like. I think that he says as long as I don't really. Um, it's not a you know, an upfront feature. I love the idea of this. If it becomes an upfront feature, then suddenly it's going to distract from the other things that are going on. Yeah. And I think this thing, but I love the story of it. And I think that, you know, sometimes you, with, with films, you sense that there's a, there's an effort that's, that's outside of just the normal sitting in the studio and rub, you know, putting your horseshoes together and clacking them that, yeah, that has definitely. gone on. And then you, you feel that because that effort is in every element of the film. Therefore, it all comes through. And, and I think Limbo really lent itself to, to having those thought processes. Well, congratulations on, on Limbo. It really is. It's a beautiful film, like you say, beautifully written, beautifully performed, and the soundtrack that you've come up with is, is immaculate. No, I, that's, thanks for saying that. It's, it's, it's great. I had, I had you know, sort of... It wasn't... It wasn't diff I mean, Ben is, I have to say, I mean, hopefully... Um, no one ever gets to work with him other than me because he's a, he's, a, he's a lovely, you know, really, it's not, it's not easy. You know, there was, we, we worked hard, but he allows me to, he allows us to find the journey to where he's wanting to be. And as long as we are understanding that we're being, um, you know, suggested that we maybe look here and suggested we maybe look there, you feel it is a collaboration, um, yeah. but you're all working towards the same thing. It was so, I mean, but I say it's one of those things, you read the script, and you you just you're in love with the the way they're written. It's so beautifully written that you know you think right. You know, this is going to be this. There's not going to be a bad day in this in this production. It's well apparently in the shooting it was terrible because the weather was <laughs> unbelievable. But once it gone got into the editing process, and you know sort of um, the 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 main actors are so good. The uh, yeah, I thought it's it's really it's one of those things to say. There's few there's sometimes films just just do that, and they all. I mean, I have to say that sometimes I find myself saying, and this is a really arsy thing to say, but actually I think it's true. Is that sometimes listen to what the film wants, and because so often they do tell you, and mm. um, and actually I think Limbo, that's why Limbo works so well is that that's it's, it's got exactly what it's asking for. So thanks again to Ben for taking the time to talk to us about Limbo. Owen and I both agree wholeheartedly that Ben and his team really did provide Limbo with the soundtrack that it needed. 
really enjoyed listening to Ben talk, particularly about actually his thought processes as much as the technical processes. Um, really fascinating kind of exploration of um, ideas in sound. Yeah, we really appreciated the generosity of just how much Ben shared about his own process and how he embraces challenges and learning new ideas with every film he works on. So we'll look forward to the next film with his name on the credits. Absolutely. Now, we also have some important AMPS business to discuss. It's been an exciting time for the organisation lately. And the first thing that we need to talk about is the recent award ceremony that was held in London on the 12th of September 2021, at which the following awards were given. So firstly, the Excellence in Sound for Television Drama was awarded to The Queen's Gambit. Excellence in Sound for Factual Film went to Ronnie's, Ronnie Scott and his world-famous jazz club. Um, the excellence in a production audio product went to Sound Devices CL16 Control Surface. And finally, the excellence in a post-production audio product was awarded to Kraken, Dialogue Editor's Toolkit 1.2. Two new AMPS fellowships were also awarded at that same ceremony. One to the Distinguished Supervising Sound Editor, Catherine Hodgson, and another to the former Chair of AMPS and re-recording mixer, Rob Walker. So congratulations to both of them and to all the winners and nominees of this year's awards. Yeah, congratulations to you all. Now also, AMPS in 2020 commissioned the Challenge Consultancy to look at all areas of AMPS regarding equality, diversity and inclusion in the organisation and the wider industry. And the Challenge Consultancy has recently produced a change report, which is a 33-page document that is now available to all AMPS members and will be published in full uh, in the near future. Yeah, and you can find out more information about that as well as everything going on with AMPS on their website, which is amps.net. That includes ways to join if you're not already a member of AMPS like us. And if you'd like to reach us at all, just to feedback on our podcast or offer new ideas for future episodes, then you can find us at, at AMPS Podcast on Twitter or our email address, amppspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Yeah, until next time, take care.